Leadership Confessions with Phil Rose from Clarity Leadership. Welcome to the latest edition of Leadership Confessions with me, Phil Rose. I was very excited to introduce these podcasts, a series of confessions from a number of different leaders from a number of different industries. But today's confession is really pretty special, I think. I'd like to introduce David Birmingham. David was caught up as part of the NatWest 3 in the Enron scandal. And I'm going to really just hand over to, to David to rewind the clock and give us some context behind what happened and what happened to him. I, I want to pick on a date of June the 28th, 2002. David, firstly, welcome. How are you? I'm very well indeed, Phil. Yeah, thank you for having me on. So tell me about that day, June 28th, 2002. Uh, what happened? Well, it, it was one of those seminal moments in one's life. I was sitting in bed giving a bottle of milk to my then three-month-old uh, son. He was the youngest of our three children. And I was watching the BBC Breakfast News and, uh, and all of a sudden I was on it, um, along with a couple of, uh, of former colleagues of mine. And uh, we'd just been accused by the American government of, uh, of defrauding NatWest uh, in a transaction in which we had been involved a couple of years previously. So you worked for NatWest at the time? We didn't work for NatWest in, uh, in 2002. No, we had left NatWest in, in 2000. Uh, but the transaction that was, that was at the centre of the allegations against us uh, had, had taken place in 2000. So I'm literally watching the BBC Breakfast News and there I am being read out as one of three people who've just been accused by the American government of, of defrauding my own bank in London, which was a pretty scary moment, frankly. Explain to everyone, please, how that came about. Rewind the clock to give us some context. Well, it's a long and boring story. I mean, so long and boring was it that I, I wrote a book about it called A Price to Pay, which I, I think has sold about 27 copies. And if, <laughs> if you ever need a cure for insomnia, that's probably it. But to cut a very long story short, uh, the three of us, the NatWest three, myself, Gary Mulgrew and Giles Darby, we were all colleagues who worked for NatWest at the back end of the, the 1990s and into 2000. And one of our major clients was a big American energy company called Enron. And it was the darling of the US stock market at, at, at the time. A lot of things were all happening at once, including NatWest being the subject of a hostile takeover from variously the Royal Bank of Scotland and Bank of Scotland. And the three of us in the very, very early months of, of 2000 um, determined to leave NatWest and we were going to go somewhere else. But at the time of leaving, we entered into a, a, a transaction with the chief financial officer of Enron, uh, which was on personal account. In other words, it, was, it wasn't something we did on behalf of the bank. We did it for ourselves. We made an investment um, in a special purpose entity alongside him. And to cut a long story short, we made a large amount of money. We made $7 million between the three of us in a relatively short period of time. And a couple of years later, um, Enron went bust. And some information became public, which gave us cause to worry about the transaction that we had been involved in and whether or not it might have been fraudulent. And so we went to the Financial Services Authority in London and reported our suspicions that there had been a fraud on Enron. And the Financial Services Authority took an awful lot of information from us and they said, thank you very much. It's brilliant. You've, you've come in and we need to go away and have a look at this. They came back a couple of months later and said, yeah, we've looked at it. Uh, you don't seem to have done anything that we can see is wrong, but we need to pass all this information to, to the United States investigators. Are you okay with that? We said, yes, of course. And that was um, at the end of 2001. And we just sat and waited for to be called by somebody and, and we weren't. And then six months later, we just turned up on the news one morning having been accused of fraud. 
So did you feel like you were doing anything wrong at the time? No, uh, no, we didn't. I mean, you know, when, we, we've had an awful long time to, uh, to revisit um, what we did, why we did it, how we did it. Um, but at the time, no, certainly we didn't think we were doing anything wrong, no. And what happened to the $7 million? <laughs> well, th that which didn't go into the hands of an enormous quantity of both British and American lawyers in fighting a very long and protracted legal battle um, ended up, uh, we were, at the end of all of this, re required to make um, what, what was called restitution to, to the Royal Bank of Scotland for money which we had allegedly defrauded from them. So you were extradited to the US in 2006? That's right. Yeah. How did that come about? So after we were charged in, in um, mid-2002, uh, nothing much happened for about 18 months. And, and thereafter, Tony Blair decided as, as part of the, uh, the, his efforts in the war on terror to introduce a new piece of extradition uh, legislation on the 1st of January 2004, which enabled um, several countries, including the US, to request the extradition of UK citizens without the, the boring necessity to provide any evidence in support of their request. And about five minutes after this legislation came into effect, that's exactly what the US government did. So uh, in early 2004, we were faced with an extradition request under this new law. We spent two years fighting it very, very publicly, fighting a bad law and fighting our extradition. And then uh, in July 2006, we, we finally lost um, the, the legal case, and, and we were put on a plane in chains to, uh, to America. <laughs> it's unbelievable. How did that feel? Uh, yeah, well, uh, the thing was, it, it was a car crash that happened in very slow motion. Um, so by the time we actually got put on the plane, a huge amount of water had, had travelled under many, many bridges. We'd had a, an enormous amount of time, ultimately, to get used to the possibility of this. So it wasn't like you wake up one morning and, you know, the world has changed. But, it, but nonetheless, it was, yeah, it was pretty horrendous. I remember saying goodbye to Emma at, at Croydon Police Station uh, before being handed over to the US Marshals. And it, was, um, it wasn't a great morning, I have to say, you know, because I think the reality is, you know, we just didn't, we simply didn't know when or if we were ever coming back. And, and Emma, your wife, you know, you, you know, and that's how we know one another, uh, friends and, and through the families. You know, you had three young children at the time. Um, we'll come back to that. Who or uh, and what support was offered to you during this period? Well, as I said, it, 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 it happened over a very long and protracted period. So from 2002 through to our extradition in 2006, we had huge amount of support from family, from friends. Um, uh, Boris Johnson, our MP at the time, was absolutely brilliant. Um, we ended up with an unholy alliance of people backing us, including Liberty, the Human Rights Organization, um, Digby Jones, the head of the CBI, and the Daily Telegraph. And the Barclay brothers actually launched a campaign to all intents and purposes on our behalf called the Fair Trials for Business campaign, all of whom were sort of four square behind getting this ridiculous extradition law changed. Um, and that gave us a huge amount of sucker during what were, you know, very difficult times. Um, I, I suppose other than, <clears throat> other than family and friends, the person to whom we owed the most was, it was a lady by the name of Melanie Riley, who uh, we hired originally to, to endeavour to get the, the public uh, media case for change to this, this law done. And, and, and she ended up being a massive activist, not only for us, but for several other people who came after us. 
to try and get the law changed. She's an extraordinary lady. So if they're the people who offered you support and the kind of support that you got, who didn't? Who, who did you feel sort of hung you out to dry a bit? Well, you can pretty much name anybody in UK officialdom, specifically the Home Office. I would happily go and burn down the Home Office. Um, <laughs> the Royal Bank of Scotland, who, um, who basically hung us out to dry for reasons which I completely understand. You know, they were bent over a desk by the Department of Justice and told, told if, if they helped us at all, the, the company itself would be indicted into out of business. And they'd done that to Arthur Anderson, so it wasn't an idle threat. So I kind of forgive the Royal Bank of Scotland for not giving us the help we needed. Financial Services Authority, to whom we went to report our suspicions voluntarily of a fraud, who then just walked to the other side of the street and said nothing to do with us. And the Serious Fraud Office, who refused point blank even to consider investigating our case, um, such that we might have the opportunity of getting it heard in the UK where it belonged. So pretty much anyone in UK officialdom, yeah, I'd, I'd hang them all out to try. So you were found guilty, clearly. You were extradited, put on a plane in chains, as you say. Do you still think you did something wrong? Uh, well, do I think we did something unethical? Absolutely, yes. You know, we've, we've had plenty of, of cause to look back at what we did and, and, and why we did it. And, you know, frankly, our, our behaviour our behavior was unethical. Do I actually think we did anything illegal? Not only do I not think that, but, but the, uh, the Financial Services Authority, who did conduct their own investigation into it, concluded quite conclusively that we'd done nothing illegal. And likewise, the Royal Bank of Scotland knew full well that they had not been defrauded. Um, the charges against us by the Americans were just wholly fallacious. Uh, but the reality is, you know, you can make a, a crime out of walking on the cracks in the pavement in America. And, and ultimately, we, we realised that the, the price of getting home was, was to sign a piece of paper saying, yes, you know, we were criminals. And, and that's what we did. There's not many people that would know someone that's been in prison in the United States. How was it? Well, I was actually, I managed to be in five prisons in America and a further five back here in, in the UK. And I, I would say, you know, you, you meet the best and the worst of humanity in prison. Um, and I met some of the best of humanity in, in, in the first prison I was in, which was in California. Because the thing is about US prisons is that people who get put in prison in America tend to get put there for a very long time. You know, a sentence of 30 years without parole is relatively routine in America. America has the highest number of people in prison per capita of any country in the world. There are two and a half million people in prison in America. And some of them are there for really not very serious crimes as we would see it here in through looking through UK eyes. Um, but in America, you know, 30 years is 30 years. And, and you know, you get, you, you walk on the wrong crack in the pavement and you end up with a 30 year sentence. So it's enormously humbling um, when, you know, you arrive there having signed a plea agreement and, and got a 37-month sentence, and, and these guys are doing, you know, 10, 15, 20 times that. But by the same token, there's some pretty grim people in prison, um, as, as there are in all walks of life. But I would say, on balance, the US prisons, from my perspective, were an awful lot easier than the UK prison, because it's so regimented. It, the, the regimes are so strict. And uh, I had... I'd spent some time in the army before I went into banking and it was kind of a bit like basic training. You know, the very first prison I was in in California, I was in a um, essentially an open warehouse um, sleeping accommodation. There were 250 of us in bunk beds two feet apart, which is kind of like basic training in the army. So if, you, if you've done anything like that, then, then it's, it's a good training for prison, really. But it's, 
mindless routine and and you know um, what you need to do to get through it is is just find ways to fill the gaps in the day which are long so so why five prisons in the us we'll come to the uk one so but, but why were you moved uh simply because it, in order to come back to the uk under under their prisoner transfer treaty you have to stage out of um, the metropolitan correctional center in new york and i was starting in uh california that's a, a relatively large distance between them. So you, I, I embarked, when finally my transfer back to the UK was approved, I then embarked on an odyssey through the US British prison system that took in, um, a, a, a first of all, a prison in the middle of the Mojave Desert, um, and then Oklahoma City, um, and then uh, Atlanta um, in Georgia, and finally back up into Pennsylvania and, and a quick hop down into uh, New York um, City to, to the MCC. Um, people now nowadays might be more familiar with the MCC as the place where um, Jeffrey Ips, Epstein died. Now, I, I was probably in the same cell in which he died. I spent some time <laughs> in the shoe there. It's, I, I, I can attest to the fact that it's pretty grim. I remember you telling me a story, you know, sitting on at the Atlanta runway, seeing a, a British Airways flight out the window. You know, how did that feel? Yeah, well, I mean, that was, you couldn't make that stuff up. Well, honestly, the, 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 if anybody's ever seen Con Air, Con Air does exist. I mean, it isn't quite as portrayed in the film, but the American prison, Bureau of Prisons has a fleet of aircraft and, and wherever you land, you taxi to a far part of the airport and then the plane is surrounded by marshals with guns and dogs and everything else. And then you're all trooped off in your chain, you know, shuffling along like some chain gang. But I remember sitting in Atlanta airport waiting to fly out to God knows where, because you don't know where you're going. That's all part of the mystery on, on the Odyssey. And as I was sitting there, I looked out of the window and I could see the British Airways 777, which was only going to one place, which was London Heathrow. And I, I could see it. It was about 400 yards across the other side of the airfield. And I just thought, oh, Jesus, you know, what, what has my life become? So that must have been amazingly hard what what did you learn about yourself in those five years sorry three years in in the u.s prison system um well in fairness i was only in the u.s prison system uh less than a year um, and, and the rest back, back in the uk but i think what, what you learn most of all is is that we are all infinitely adaptable creatures and it didn't take me a great deal of time to work out that in prison you keep your mouth shut you keep your head down you do your time um you don't want to be a tall tulip because bad things happen to tall tulips so as i said earlier it's you know it's a very humbling experience you you learn that we are all equal when it comes to prison that, that there is nobody who is special in prison everybody's just another name and a number i'm actually quite proud of the way i kept through it actually that you know i i did survive it knowing that there was an end knowing that even if i had to serve every day of the sentence we were given um, that there was an end to it. I was coming home to a family and uh, life wasn't so bad. Yeah, we'll come on to the family and uh, shortly. What did you learn about your other inmates? Well, as, as I said earlier, that you meet the best and the worst of humanity in prison. I mean, there are some people I met in prison, both in, in California and, and likewise back here in the UK, who, who I still keep in touch with. And there are others you just, you know, it makes you sick just thinking about them, frankly. There are all sorts in prison. There will always be all sorts in, in prison. But for the most part in America, the vast majority of the people that I met and consorted with were actually really good blokes. I, I played 
football for a, a Mexican gang team. In, in the prison I was in in California, there were 1,500 people of whom 900 were uh, Latinos and the rest were roughly 50-50 blacks and whites. But the Latinos all played football. They all thought they were Maradona. And because I was the sole Englishman in a prison of 1,500, obviously I must be really good at football. <laughs> I was immediately drafted into the team on which my bunkie, the chap on my lower bunk, played. And, and they all believed I really ought to be in centre midfield because obviously I was going to be David Beckham. But I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. And so you've got basically all of these different gangs and there's 900 Latinos, there's 22 of them on the pitch and then there's 870 odds standing on the touchlines hurling abuse at you because they're from different gangs. So it was, it was great fun. Thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Um, so let, so ha, your wife, Emma, it must have been a torturous experience for her. Three young children all the uncertainty, how did she cope? She coped as she always does. She's a bit of a force of nature, my wife, as anyone who knows her will attest. She did absolutely brilliantly. I, and I think, you know, as, as with all of these things, if you have supportive family and friends around you, life is immeasurably easier. And we were blessed in that regard. So, you know, she got on absolutely fantastically. She came out during the time that I was in Houston before we entered into our plea agreement and got sent to prison. We were in Houston for two years. And she came out 13 times over that period. Um, and every, every time there was a school holiday, she'd bring the kids with her. So it was a hellish time for her. Um, but she did unbelievably well. I, yeah, I, I, I don't deserve her, frankly. Uh, she is a remarkable woman. I can absolutely vouch for that. And what impact did it have on the children? Well, we were incredibly fortunate because I think they were all of an age um, where they kind of understood it, but, but it wasn't something that was going to destroy their lives because they were too young for that. And, and, you know, there weren't major exams being messed up by any of this. So when it all kicked off in 2006, you know, Jemima was only eight and Archie by that stage was only four. So by the time it was all over, um, you know, Jemima was sort of 12 going on 13 um, and Archie at that stage was, you know, eight. So they were of an age where, although it was there, although it was in the background, they could assimilate it to a degree, but it, it, it wasn't, you know, there was too much else going on in their lives and nothing was being messed up. And how was it returning home? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty strange, to be absolutely honest with you, because the first thing I wanted to do when I got home um, was to have a bath, because it had been a very long time since I'd been able to have a bath. They're not the kind of things you have in prisons. You, I had literally, as I arrived home, I was fitted with my chavnav, the, the, the ankle break, because I had to spend um, four and a half months on, on a thing called home detention curfew um, at the end of my sentence. And so they, they fitted the chavnav to my ankle. I promptly went upstairs to get into the bath and it's a, it was an iron bath. And so about an hour later, there are alarm bells ringing and police coming and I've broken my curfew already and I'm going back to prison. And, and it was simply because the, the, you know, the Chavnav couldn't talk to an iron bar. So all of those things, very, very strange little things that you have to sort of get accustomed to. But it didn't take long, to be honest with you, to, to slip back into normal, goring life, mostly because um, the friends that we've got locally and, you know, the school and everything else, everyone just sort of wrapped their arms around us as soon as I was back. So, yeah, it was lovely. Uh, strange, but lovely. So what are you doing today? Well, I'm speaking to you, Phil. <laughs> yeah, ask a scoopy question. So yeah, I know that you're involved in a different kind of business today. What is that? 
Yeah, so a few years, when I was in the post, post-release from prison period, I, I, I found myself, not unreasonably, completely unemployable. Um, and so I had to figure out what the hell I was going to do. And, and by complete chance, I happened across a video of a, a biomethane plant, the first biomethane production plant in the UK, which had been built down in Poundbury um, near <clears throat> Prince Charles's model village. And it was a, a means uh, of, of creating a renewable uh, methane gas that could be injected into the gas grid. And I just thought, wow, that is fantastic. I, I would love, love to do something like that. So I got hold of the guys, the gas guys, the guys from Scotia Gas Networks who, who had been in the video, who'd done this and said, look, um, do you fancy helping me do something like this? And they said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, we, we spent a long time doing this first one as a means of rolling it out. And so I um, managed to uh, put together a team of people and we built um, and I now run a, a biomethane plant, the first and only one in South Oxfordshire, makes enough methane, renewable gas for about 5,000 homes. Um, and I'm enormously proud of it. It's been running for six years now and it, it occupies me um, on a daily basis. That's what I do. It's working for a living. <laughs> so but yeah, I know you sort of beeps working for a living, but you are working. When, when are you at your best? I think when when there is a challenge, when somebody has said, no, that can't be done, or when the, there is something that's new and out there and very rarely been done. I mean, the biomethane is a decent example of it. I just saw something and thought, wow, that's fantastic. I'd really like to do that. And then you're kind of standing in the foothills of a very big mountain with lots of people saying, that's too difficult. Don't do that. And that to me is the point at which I go, right, I'm going to do this. I, 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 can't, I, I can't abide being told, no, you can't do that. Um, because when people say that, I just want to go, well, why not? Mm. If they can't give me a decent reason why not, then I'm going to do it. And, and where do you get your inspiration from? Who inspires you? Primarily people who in life have suffered some real catastrophic incident. Um, maybe, you know, maybe... They're veterans who come back from Afghanistan or somewhere like that without with limbs missing or whatever, or people who've suffered a, a horrific car crash or, you know, or some kind of a loss or some kind of a major, major, major incident in their lives. And where the majority of us would just want to kind of curl up in a ball and say, poor me, but they don't. They say, right, okay, press reset. Everything's different now. Um, I've, I've got these disabilities or I've got this or whatever, but I'm now going to make a life doing this or I'm going to do that or I'm going to do something really quite extraordinary. Those are the people I get, I get really enthused by. And, and what sort of things rattle your cage? Computer says no. <laughs> that kind of thing really, really upsets me um, because I want to know why not. I just don't want the computer to say no. But I suppose probably... Most Manchester United fans. <laughs> we won't go into that just yet. Um, uh, so what advice would, uh, would you give a 27-year-old? Because that's when you started work. You, as you said, you'd been in the army. You left the army, uh, I think, 27 to get into the finance industry. What, what advice would you give a 27-year-old David starting again? Well, I think the best piece of, of life advice I've ever been given, which I'd, I'd like to pass on to myself at that age, because I was a lot older when somebody gave it to me, is how would it sound if you had to explain it to your mother? <laughs> and if you're ever in a situation in life where you're, where you're you know, trying to make a decision as to whether you should do something or you shouldn't do something or, or whatever, 
if you just kind of ask yourself, how would I explain this to my mother? How would it sound? I think that's a really good piece of advice because I think, you know, the transaction that we entered into, it was all about ethics. It was about morals and we lost our ethical compass. And if, if we had just paused, if we sat back um, and said, look, what does this really look like? How, how would I explain this to my mother? What would my mother say if I told her that I was going to do this? Um, we would never have done it. And I think that's probably the best piece of advice I could give to anyone. And are there any repercussions for you today on what happened all those years ago? Oh, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm permanently unemployable in any sensible role. Um, but I think the funniest one, I mean, there, there are some amusing ones. And I think one of these is the, the mechanisms of the Interpol Red List, because after, after we were charged, because we were in a foreign country, the US as a matter of routine put an Interpol Red Notice on us. And what that means is that it's, a, it's an alert to all countries worldwide that if, if we happen to turn up in their jurisdiction to immediately imprison us and put us on a plane to America. And that still exists. And the problem with it is that despite the fact that all of our legal situation is long since resolved, if I travel to Spain or Italy or most of the European countries, it's just still sitting on their system. And so Emma and I will turn up in Rome airport, as we did a couple of years ago on the, on the, the way to a wedding and spend three hours of me being detained in Rome airport because there's a, an Interpol red notice that says, please send this man to the US. So that kind of thing, which is very, very difficult to shake off. I can't, as a matter of routine, I can't travel back to the US. I can't go to New Zealand or Australia, although nobody else can at the moment, but um, you know, stuff like that. But, but nothing, nothing that in any way really impedes my life, no. And, and what, what does the future hold for you now? Well, I'm always on the lookout for new things. I'm, I'm currently uh, working on something which Emma has um, politely called the carbuncle, which is some, uh, some garden art, um, along with a, a physics genius friend of mine uh, who came up with an idea that, that um, for some kinetic art in, in the garden. And, and I said, well, that is absolutely fantastic. We need to get this done. And so in second week in June, this thing is being installed in our garden, about which Emma is absolutely furious. But hopefully we'll, we'll uh, be able to turn around when she sees it. So pretty much anything of, of interest. The, the biomethane plant keeps me busy. Um, it, it makes me a living. But there's, I, I always have an open mind as, as to other interesting stuff that I could do. But it would need to be something that hasn't been done before. And, and during these 15, 20 years, what's been harder? Uh, doing what you've been through or supporting Arsenal? during this period? Oh, Phil, that's unfair. Mind you, it could be worse. I could be a Man City fan. Yes, thank you. We'll move on to the quick-fire questions. What's your guilty pleasure? Oh, it's got to be the flat at the Emirates. Oh, dear me. Um, uh, one thing you'd put in room 101 and not Man United fans? Uh, it was Man United, but, but I'll move on. If it's not Man United, uh, it would have to be the Home Office and all its occupants. <laughs> What's one of your most annoying traits or sayings, or should we ask Emma? You should probably ask Emma, but I think, I think the one for which I'm best known is crack on. Um, <laughs> well, what one thing would you love to be brilliant at, but you're just not? Uh, skiing, something very close to your, uh, your heart. I know, Phil, I, I would love to be really good at skiing. Um, I, I'm a competent skier, but I, I'd love to be a really good skier. Uh, and lastly, uh, mate, what makes you smile? Emma, on a daily basis. Um, 
And spring. I love spring in the UK. The, the greens on the trees are just so wonderful. It's just you wake up every morning, you open the curtains and it brings a smile to your face. David, thank you, sir. A real intriguing, revealing, interesting podcast. Uh, I want to thank you for the stories, your humour, and just thank you, mate. That was brilliant. Pleasure as always, Phil. Love to talk to you. Leadership Confessions from Clarity Leadership. Email hello at clarityleadership.co.uk and subscribe to receive every episode as it's released.